I'm paraphrasing, but I like the synopsis I read of hockey card stories too that I found online. Some cards are worth a few bucks, some cards are worth a few cents, but the stories behind them are priceless. Sportsnet's Ken Reed follows up 2014's hockey card stories with part two that was released on October 2nd. What is evident is that Ken has bottled up a part of his youth and never let it go. Hockey cards provide a sort of a metronome to all he has held sacred growing up in Pictou County, Nova Scotia. Even if hockey cards aren't your thing, you can almost imagine Ken sitting down and studying his collection for hours. Why is tough guy Cam Russell's nose taped? Is that a cigarette ad on the score clock next to Todd Harchie? And what does Jamie Linden have to hide in a card with his famous brother Trevor? I'm Neil Acharya and I'm pleased to be joined by Nate Sager here on Sports Lit. Today we welcome back our highest rated guest, our highest rated guest ever, Sportsnet Central anchor and author, plus hockey card collector, Ken Reed. Nate? Yeah, it's wonderful to have Ken Reed back today and obviously a lot of anticipation for this book. Uh, just to put it this way, my review copy got sent to my work and you know I opened it immediately because if you're in a newsroom and a plain brown envelope is on your desk waiting for you, you open it. And within about an hour like three different people stop by what do you got here and they're picking it up they're you know they're testing the heft they're flipping through it they're you know laughing at the i think there's a famous error card where a picture of right-handed center joel Otto is left-handed winger mo LeMay. you know i'm almost i'm almost gonna have to put up like a sign-up sheet for lending it out and so this book you know really takes back time pre-internet when having a trading card meant you had status like lucy and the peanuts telling schroeder Beethoven can't be great because he doesn't have his picture on a bubblegum card. So, you know, a lot of people, when they pinpoint why the cards are popular, they're like, well, before the internet, it was it was the only way you could know someone's season-by-season season stats unless you wanted to take the NHL guide and record book to school with you. And who is a big enough nerd to do that? I'm slowly raising my hand here. But there's something more to it, and I always hearken to what the late, great Paul Quarrington, the Canadian novelist, said in his book, Hometown Heroes. He said this notion that the grid of stats on a back of a card was, was your life box. And he goes, as he put it, I have learned about life boxes. No one else calls them life boxes, although the name seems fairly obvious to me. Media people, scouts, creatures of this ilk, make a concerted effort to sum up a man's professional career in a box about yay big. You see enough of these life boxes, you learn some things. So... You know, it traces the, you know, now there's hockey DB and you can almost see, trace the arc of, a, you know, a professional life and Ken, you know, gets into the stories behind that. And that's, uh, you know, you know, why, why we have him here today. And that's why I think these, these books have, have been so popular and well received. And, the, you know, the format with the, you know, the short, short chapters makes it, you know, sort of an ideal. Okay, put this on my nightstand, pick it up when, you know, when I need to, you know, get away from screens for a while. A tactile time machine on cardboard. Those aren't my words. I found that in a book review as well. And yes, as you said, we're very excited to have him on again. Without further ado, after the break, Ken Reed. And we're back. Once again, I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nate Sager. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Ken Reed of Sportsnet. Thank you. Hold <laughs> the applause. It's 10 in the morning, boys. I work late, so um, I'd only get up for you two. This is uh, probably the earliest I've been up uh, Yeah, in a I know. Long You're time. not an early morning guy either. <laughs> um, Hockey Card Stories was wildly successful, uh, the first, uh, first installment uh, when it was released in 2014. 
Um, considering it was your first release, mm -hmm. uh, was there anything that surprised you about its re reception? Because I'm imagining how it was received was kind of the genesis of how part two came about. Yeah, what surprised me was people read it and people <laughs> liked it. I, it sounds selfish, but I find that uh, what's worked for me in my career, whether it's broadcasting or now writing, is I do stuff that I like. And if other people like it, then cool. Um, so I wanted to write about hockey cards. I wanted to ask guys about their old hockey cards. And it turns out that there was an appetite of curiosity among the, the card collecting and hockey fan public to want to know about it too. So I was, I was surprised how many people picked it up and enjoyed it. I had never written a book before, so I didn't really know what I was doing. But I just figured I'd go at it from the point of, I'm just telling a story like I would on TV. Um, except it was in written form. And uh, that's what surprised me is how well received it was. And uh, I think it, it just kind of maybe really stamped down for me uh, how passionate people were about their cards as kids and as they got older, how nostalgic they became and, and what a connection those cards were for an entire generation of us who grew up with one game on TV a week um, without the internet. So that's what the hockey card stories um, reiterate pretty much told me was that people are passionate about their cards and they are a huge connection to their childhood like they were for me. Um, did you did you receive any interesting feedback, anything that, that, you, that surprised you in particular? Was there a, a, someone that came up to you and said something or was it just across the board? It was just across the board. Uh, you know, randomly people would come up and say, oh, the thing I got most was, are you going to write a sequel? And I kind of didn't, I, here we are four years later and I was well, yeah, I guess, if it, this one's popular enough. And just how many people also knew about the, a certain card, or they'd ask, why don't you do this card in your, if you do a sequel? And You're taking requests. I was taking requests. There's actually in Hockey Card Stories too. there are a couple of requests. There's a Dino Cicerelli rhinoceros card where he's feeding a rhinoceros. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have that card growing up, and but I thought I'd had to do it for the book because I... Uh, so many people wanted to know about it. Same as the Olaf Kolzik hot dog card. Everyone <laughs> said, you have to have the Olaf Kolzik hot dog card in the book. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll put it in. So there's three cards in the book that I didn't have or didn't come across during my years as a collector. It's the, the rhinoceros card from Dino Cicerelli that was requested by multiple people. The hot dog card from Olaf Kolzik that was requested by multiple people. And the Cam Russell minor league card that Cam himself showed me when I said I wanted to talk about a score rookie, he said, no, 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 we got to do this one, man. So, <laughs> so that's, uh, it's funny how, how people connect the cards and really want to know the stories behind cards and, and maybe learn that there is more than just the, the picture on the front and the names on the back. A lot more go into it than making a hockey card than just that. How did, first of all, Cam Russell had a, had a broken nose and his nose is all taped up and he looks like he's going for a cross check in his yeah. card. And, and, um, uh, how did Olaf Kolzig get the, his name in mustard? On a photographer. So Olaf, Olaf, so he was sitting by the rink because he was in one of those rinks. I think he said it was the old trop where Tampa played before they moved into their arena. Mm -hmm. And the backup goalie position was, you know, kind of in the corner. You know how you see at some rinks, the backup goalie's not on the right. ice, especially now with their gigantic equipment. But <laughs> back, back then he's sitting in a corner and he just happened to be sitting beside a photographer. So like most hockey players pretty social guy so he just kind of starts talking to this photographer and yeah he says i'm you know i'm uh taking pictures for hockey cards blah 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 and did you ever eat a hot dog and while you play no geez no no so he came <laughs> back after the intermission and the guy had printed his name in in mustard 
and <laughs> I will leave it there as to how it ended up on a hockey card. You'll have to buy the book to find out is that a tease or what. I love it. Um, uh, what uh, four? I guess four years later, looking back, what are the difference between the two books? Too is there any major difference they, for those that haven't read the yeah, first one? Yeah, well, it's like an encyclopedia set. You don't have to read letter A to read letter B. So if you didn't buy the first hockey card stories, don't worry, you can buy this one. You'll there's it's not like Lord of the Rings where you need to know what happened <laughs> in the first one or or Star Wars. It's it's just uh, the the difference with this book is in the first book I did just Opeachy cards. Right. This one there's a lot more cards from the boom era, and by the boom era I mean '89, '90, '91 when we were all collecting. When there was hockey card stores everywhere. When you'd go into a convenience store and they'd have a hockey card display. So the boom era. There's a ton of cards from the boom era. So if you were one of those guys who collected Upper Deck and Score and Pro Set in 1990 and you thought you were going to be a millionaire, there's a lot of the cards in the book that you thought were gonna make you rich, uh, including the Eric Lindros rookie card. I know everybody thought the Eric Lindros score rookie was gonna set them up for retirement. What's that worth of right about now? You get, uh, put it this way, I bought 14 of them for a nickel each at the National in Chicago a year ago, but up around here in Canada, it'd run you anywhere from a buck to 10 bucks. And now if you got it graded, who knows, but just in its raw form, Buck to ten bucks. Not you're not going to be a millionaire. No, you used to. I, I remember just selling them fist over fist for fifteen bucks as fast as I could sell them back in the day. You knew you 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 predicted the market. Uh, I just had a lot of them. I, I sold my doubles as a kid. Yeah, I, I think I was that kid. I, I remember selling a Sergey Fedorov uh, young guns. Yeah, uh, no, it was one. It was like he was in the Red Army jersey. Oh, the OPG. The OPG. Yeah. I remember getting fifty bucks for that. that fifty was, bucks. Yeah, somebody wow, way you over did well. There. Yeah, I cashed in early. <laughs> yeah, you did well. It's amazing how many of those. Because there was such a cool rookie class around 1990, right? And there were so many rookies you could collect. And now you, you're not going to get rich off them. Now, I was wondering, uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with numbers. You had the Dennis Marook book, which I think it was 60 chapters because it yeah. was a 60 goal scorer. This one is 59 more true tales. So, yeah. so who didn't return your call? <laughs> no, uh, everybody pretty much called me back for this one, which was cool. Uh, the first one was 60 until a guy called me up all angry. Said, get or emailed me, get my story out of that book. Because oh. I, I think the guy kind of went a little off the deep end. So I said, yeah, <laughs> sure, I'll take it out. I'll, I'll, I'll live without it. So this one, I just wanted to keep fifty nine going. No, no, no big reason why. Uh, what was what was the most un, what was the most unusual interview setting that you had for this setting? Like in terms of like circumstances where you got managed to track someone down. Well, the best part was chasing Wayne Gretzky for the book. Um, I wanted Wayne for the book big time because it was the logical conclusion to uh to the book it, it actually the book doesn't as you guys know each chapter is its own separate entity but wayne put a nice close on the book and as a kid his rookie card was the holy grail for my brother and i we did everything to hunt it down so fittingly enough it took me a while to hunt down wayne for an interview but once guys got the message to him he was great he, oh yeah they called me back right away it was awesome because you know how sometimes you have to go through people to get the people? For and then sure, other especially times if it's Wayne Gretzky. Right. Now, Neil, <laughs> if you tried to book me through it's Sportsnet true. and through yeah. my people, it'd take forever. It's true. But you got my number. You know me. Yes. Boom. Here we are. Same deal. As soon as, I, as, as soon as Mr. Gretzky, as, as I got in direct contact, it was easy peasy. So he was awesome. So he was a great, great conclusion for the book. I did some uh, interviews at the National Sports Card Collection, Collectors Convention in Chicago which was a lot of fun. I interviewed Guy Lafleur there. I interviewed Brett Hall there. Um, I interviewed some guys at the Sports Expo here in uh, Toronto. I interviewed Jerry Cheevers there, Doug Favell there. Most of the interviews were conducted by the phone, but the best chase was 
was definitely Wayne Gretzky. And the, the best reaction was when I told Cam Russell I wanted to do his card, and then he showed me his <laughs> rookie card on, on his telephone, and we passed it around at the Danny Galvin tournament, and people were in stitches looking at, his, at this card of his. So I'm like, okay, that has to be in the book. I want to. I was going to ask you this a little later on, but since you brought it up, uh, the Wayne Gretzky uh, interview. I mean, you grew up. I mean, that generation idolized him. Yeah, and and so, what was that like? I mean, are you dialing his number? Is he calling you? How they does... called me. He was actually doing a signing with Upper Deck. So my okay. buddies from Upper Deck were like, "We'll tell him. We'll get him to call you." So he was doing a signing, and they just called me. So hey, is this Ken? Hey, it's Wayne. How are you? It's good. Um, so we just had a little twenty-minute chat. It was great because my my. The, with Wayne Gretzky, what I wanted to know was, because I usually start by asking guys what their card meant to them, right? Because mm-hmm. right. for a lot of guys, it's this stamp. It's like a tattoo. I made it to the NHL because I have a hockey card. But for Wayne Gretzky, I was curious because, as you guys know, by the time his first card came out when he was 18 years old, he'd already been a national celebrity since he was 12. Right. He'd already played pro hockey in the WHA in Indianapolis. He was a junior star with Sault Ste. Marie. He'd done the world junior thing. So what could a card possibly mean to a guy who had already kind of been yeah. stamped as this this thing? But mm-hmm. he had some great things to say about it, and he had some awesome things to say about it as a collector when he was a kid. Like, he right. went through the same things we did, like tearing through packs looking for that one card. He needed to finish the set, and he'd have, like, 85 Larry Goodenough cards, right? <laughs> but he just couldn't get that one Bobby Hall. So he could totally relate. And I think in that way, um, that's the real joy of doing a book like this is you get to talk to 59 guys who've played the game. And as you guys know, when you talk to old hockey players, they're the best. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I'm me. I'm just some dude. I can randomly call, I don't know, pick a Hall of Famer in the back, and they'll do an interview with me. They'll Yeah, they'll pick up the phone and they'll just talk to you. You don't have to leave messages most of the time. You don't have to go through 85 people. I mean, if I try to t- track down Willie Mays, good luck. Right. But, but if, you got, you know, Gilmore Hall... LaFleur. Right. And you guys. just call them up or you just walk. To the, like with Brett Hall and, and uh, Guy LaFleur, I was at the National Collectors Convention. And I just waited until their signings were over. And I said, hi, Mr. LaFleur. I'm Ken Reed from Sports. I said, Ken, how are you? What's going on? I want to do an interview about this hockey card. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Starts laughing. We start talking about the card. It's, it's easy peasy. And in a way, I think maybe the fact that we're talking about a hockey card is a little different than an interview about yes, another subject. Absolutely. Because I highly doubt if these guys been been called about their hockey cards before right it's a pretty right. niche thing um Gretzky uh, back to Gretzky he's a I mean you can tell in his interviews he's a student of the game Absolutely. the history um and in reading his interview but we don't want to give it away there's two real great nuggets really good nuggets uh about his card that he tells you were you surprised to know we won't we don't have to talk um, about what they are in, in a way yes and in a way no but like you said Wayne is a student of the game and uh every time i'll bring up uh wayne gretzky to another play player they'll say that i was at a i do a lot of easter seals charity hockey events and uh you interact with a lot of the alumni they're great fellas a few of them have been interviewed for the book and so we got talk you know you're you're on the plane you're on a bus going to these places and we talk about guys so one of them had a really good nhl career um but not hall of fame but really good and he said, yeah, the first time I bumped into Wayne Gretzky, he goes, it was amazing. He goes, he knew where I was from. He knew all my junior stats. He knew where I fit in on the depth chart on my team. And he was amazed at just this encyclopedic knowledge right. that Gretzky had for the game. And there's a lot of great players who, 
who are students of the game and there's guys who aren't, but Gretzky is definitely a student of the game. Like, I think he knows. He's a walking hockey DB, mm-hmm. right? And it, it was really cool. And then when he came up with these nuggets about his card, I was like, yep, of course, of course. But right down to the tape on the socks, right? right. That, that's a good tease. But, yeah, yeah he, he definitely knew all about his rookie card, which to me was surprising but yet not surprising if that makes sense. It's it's pretty it's pretty awesome too, you know, when 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 the greatest player or or you know, some people might say Bobby Orr, but let's just say the greatest I'll say the greatest, yeah. The greatest player in the game almost, you know, has that same passion as the guy on the street. Absolutely. Know? That's that's and I think that's what makes it that's what makes hockey such a special game is that the greatest players will take time. I mean, how Bellavo or Gretzky, Crosby, they all conduct themselves in this great way. And, and that's what helps spread these great stories of the game because these guys usually have time to tell them. And for, I mean, for 59 guys in this book, whether they didn't play a game in the league like Jamie Matthews from Amherst, Nova Scotia, or whether they're the greatest goal scorer of all time, greatest points getter of all time, Wayne Gretzky, that entire span is in this book. And that entire span of guys took the time to, to talk to me about a hockey card. So that's, that's pretty cool. You talked about uh, the boom, the hockey card boom, uh, and I wanted to. Know, we we wanted. I, I found that a very interesting theme in this book because I grew up. You know, I'm a, not that much. Uh, I your mean, brother's your, a card guy. Yeah, though. my brother's a, a big card guy, and I'm. You know, I'm of the same ge- generation as you, pretty much. And I remember the card boom happening. So I want you to explain that. But the way I'll get into you, before you explain what the card boom was, who is Eric Linderstrom? <laughs> So yeah, that's the that's that's the story of the boom for me. So the boom was circa 1990-91 when everybody realized cards were worth money. So everybody was going into their attic looking for their cards and everyone came up with stories. My mom threw them out. So then all of a sudden all these card manufacturers popped up. There used to be just Opeachy. You could get Opeachy in Canada and Tops in the US. And then in the nineteen ninety season, Upper Deck, Score, Pro Set showed up, along with Opeachy. And cards just started being produced in mass quantity because more people wanted to buy them. So people are buying them as an investment. So there's kids buying them like they always do. But even kids are starting to put them in plastic sleeves. And suddenly there are card stores everywhere. Every little town in Canada had one. I'm from a town of 4,000. We had a card store. There was a card store 10 minutes away. Guys would set up at flea markets. There were shows. Then all of a sudden you get guys showing up that are just, they're, they're looking at cards as stock. So I'm working in a store and this this guy comes in. He's like, do you got any Eric Linderstrom cards? <laughs> and I go, uh, Eric Linderstrom? Yeah, yeah, the big hotshot junior guy at Oshawa, the big fellow there. I go, Lindros? I go, yeah, I got one right here. No, 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 Linderstrom, Eric Linderstrom. He plays for the Generals. He's going to be uh, the number one pick. I go, oh, you mean, you, mean, you mean this guy, Eric Lindros? It's Lindros. No, Linderstrom. So I'm looking at this guy going, okay, this guy clearly has no idea what hockey is. He thinks he's going to buy this card because he's going to be a millionaire. So again, I go, no, no, I'm trying not to be a little jerk, right? Because I'm 17 years old working in a card store. I go, no, no, Lindros, it's Eric Lindros. I think you got the name confused. Maybe he was confused with Nick Lindstrom. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's Lindstrom, not Lindros. I look, I look right at the card and I go, nope, none of them. So he leaves the store. So there was all kinds of guys like that. But man, we used to sell cards hand over fist. And if, if you had any foresight, and as a kid who was 17, I can see why I didn't. You'd have traded all the new stuff for old stuff because the old stuff wasn't being made anymore. And uh, but the boom was crazy. I mean, I remember going. 
you'd go into a convenience store, and in the corner of the convenience store, there'd be just display case with cards for sale, and not just by the pack, right. individual cards. They were, they were everywhere, and I don't know what I, I guess overproduction killed it. And it, but man, a certain era of kids, like if right now, if you're from the age of, I would say third, like thirty nine to. 46, 47, you were probably hooked on that boom, and you were opening pack after pack after pack, looking for a feather off a Bure or Ronick, and everybody, everybody thought they were going to be rich, but the problem was, cards were mass-produced, and as soon as you got that Lindros card, it went right into a plastic sleeve, whereas back in the day, they weren't produced as much, and when you got the Gretzky rookie card, well, maybe it went into a box, maybe you flipped it, maybe you put it on your bike, so they were damaged right away. <laughs> so everything from the boom was kept in pristine condition, overproduced so basic economics will tell you now that's they're not worth much because everyone has them how does eric lindros particularly fit into the boom eric was the guy he was gonna be the he was gonna change hockey he was the best prospect to come along since lemieux so of course he fits the boom almost perfectly because he signed an exclusive deal with score okay score was a company so he signs an exclusive deal with score where it's only they can produce his nhl card he holds out on his draft years. They make even more cards of the guy. So his rookie card basically drove score. And, I mean, in the book, he kind of tells me, look, I was in a bubble. I wasn't collecting hockey cards. Like, I was playing hockey. I'd go to movies. But they were just producing cards of him as fast as they could. So he was the poster boy for the boom. And if you look at his career, obviously cut short by injuries, but he made the Hall of Fame. Great player, dominant player. He was the perfect player for that era because... You were drafted on size, and he has size and skill. So Eric was the poster boy for the hockey card boom, for the baseball card boom. Ken Griffey Jr., 89 upper deck rookie, he'd be the poster boy for that boom. Um, now you talk about, or you write about the the scorecard. Yeah. Um, I remember all of a sudden during the, we were card collectors, me and my brother, my brother more than me, and we heard about all of a sudden there's OHL cards being produced yeah, and seventh inning sketch. Yeah. And so I'm at the Kingston Memorial Center yeah. when the generals come to town coached by uh, Rick Kornakia. And we wait outside the dressing room. There's <laughs> autograph hounds because this is a boom outside. Somehow we get outside the dressing room and I go up, I'm in grade seven. I go up to his belt Sweet. buckle and I give oh, him nice. this card. You got signed by the big E. In See, 19- that's sweet. You still have it. Seven. See, that's what it should be about. This is cards, <laughs> beautiful cards. Seventh inning sketch. That was made by a, a card store, I believe. They they got the seventh inning sketch thing going. That's awesome. And it's signed. That's great. See, now that's what it should be about at the at the base level is that you're just collecting because you want to have it. You still have it. I love that. <laughs> so, yeah, the OHL cards were a big thing. Yeah. Right? Because that was the pre-rookie card. Right. Right? Like, everything had a card. It was... It was an awesome era, but that's cool that you still have it. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Now, the forward, uh, now speaking of guys who were the next big thing and became that, yeah. the forward's uh, penned by Sidney Crosby. Yeah. Uh, I guess he's from Cole Harbor, Nova Scotia, <laughs> and he plays for the Pittsburgh Penguins. Apparently, yeah. 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 He's yeah. captain. He's, Greatest player in the world, he yeah. He's good at hockey. He's uh, good at hockey, yeah. Uh, what, may, may elaborate on what, he's, what he says in the forward about how the cards like not just the pictures on the front but right. the stats on the back made yeah. you feel closer to the guys he was Ab- watching on tv absolutely i mean sid and i and you had a and Wayne gretzky had a very similar collecting background because again that was a connection and where, where sid and i grew up we're both from nova scotia so for us the i mean for you guys 
Nate, where'd you grow up? Right here in Toronto? Uh, no, Neil and I are both from the Kingston area. Okay, so Kingston. So you guys are like two hours away from the NHL, right? So for me, I grew up 12, 14-hour drive away from the National Hockey League. The National Hockey League for me was this far-off fantasy world, much like it was for Sid Crosby from what he told me in the, mm-hmm. and wrote in the forward. The connection you had to the game was through TV, sometimes radio. There wasn't a ton of sports radio then. Or your hockey cards. So your hockey cards, you got to see the guy's face. I got to see what a uniform looked like for the Colorado Rockies. Sidney Crosby got to see what a uniform looked like for the San Jose Sharks because their games weren't on TV in Nova Scotia. You got the stats from the guys. So they were an absolute connection to the game. So, And it's funny, too, and, and Sid even talks about on his rookie card, like his rookie card now is 12, 13 years old. And he's starting to look at it going, wow, guys are starting to ask questions about my rookie. Why are you using a two-piece stick? So even right, that's right, starting right. to get nostalgic already, just like these 80s and 90s cards have for us. But, yeah, for, for, for Sidney Crosby, who was super kind to write the forward. I can't ever thank him enough for doing that. Thanks, Sid. Um, cards to him represented the same thing they did to us. And that, to me, is pretty cool because that's the connection we all have to hockey cards and the game, whether we're the best player on the planet or whether we're a, a ball hockey star or just somebody who watches on TV? Um, there are two stories, not two stories, so there are several stories in here that, um, going back to the boom, that made me kind of think about, you know, you know how how card collecting and how the sales of cards were different prior to the boom. And, mm-hmm. and the first one that struck me was Bob, Bob McGill, who's the first guy yeah. to write about. And I'm just going to read this. It says... Um, and I think these are your words here. I got my hands on his Maple Leaf rookie card, but soon discovered a problem. That was the only Bob McGill card out there. Throughout his days with the Leafs, Bob McGill was in hockey card purgatory. Quote, I played seven years in the Leafs organization, over 300 games, and I have one card as a Maple Leaf. You got your rookie card, but if you weren't one of the top seven or eight players on the team, you never got another card. Yeah. So... Explain that, like pre-boom, how yeah. how it worked, how how did how, who got a card, who did right. OPC usually had around three to four hundred cards in a set. For some reason, three hundred ninety-six sticks in my head. So yeah, if you penetrated the lineup and you made an impact as a rookie, you'd get a card, and it would come out after your first year. There were no future star cards back in the right. back in the day, um, and but then you had to be, you know, like Bob said, you had to be one of the top seven or eight guys. I mean. The, in OPG sets, the Canadian teams usually had a few more cards than the American teams, but not everybody was guaranteed a card. I mean, Lou Franceschetti started his pro career in 1980. He didn't get a card until 1990. Wow. So guys waited. And in the first book, Dave Reed, who's a big card right. collector, yes. he told me the same bloody story. He's like, man, I was just waiting for my card, waiting, 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 waiting. It didn't come out until 1990. And it's funny. The, what I love are the guys like Bob and the guys like Dave Reed who didn't get a card, it was almost like, oh, when's that card coming yeah. up? Like, it wasn't a super annoying thing, but again, it was a stamp. But yeah, so I met Bob McGill in my hometown on a golf course of all places, and we were just in awe that there was a Toronto Maple Leaf in Picto, Nova Scotia golfing, and we were all became fans, but we'd look, and he'd never have cards because he just wasn't one of the guys that OPG selected. Then the boom happens in 1990, all these sets, and he's in sets galore. Where, and he's posing for pictures as the San Jose Sharks where it looks like a Jostens High School photo. Harold Sneps, too, was another one that struck me, too, because he says something like when I, you know, at first, 
a card my card meant something and at the end right it didn't is that because because there the was just so many. many of them so many of them it's like the first girlfriend right she means a lot to you but neil you're a stud you go through you know tons of girlfriends by the end they're not so special anymore <laughs> so yeah the guy like i mean those those, those old peachy cards those first ones or your, your rookie card will mean a lot to guys um and that's why in a lot of cases i selected a rookie card because i knew the guys would remember it you know it's that kind of thing but yeah it's funny i mean Harold Snap's cards from 1990 with the St. Louis Blues from Upper Deck Score, Pro Set, Pro Set Platinum, Tops, Top Stadium Club. They probably don't mean as much to him as his 74, 75 rookie card with the Canucks. Now, I, I kind of wondered. There's always the this is there's always the nostalgia appeal as as one yeah. one ages. But is it Craig Calcaterra who writes about baseball for NBC Sports? He I think he had a theory lately. It's really strong for guys who played in the 70s and 80s. Because that was when the when the gap between pro athlete and you know just you know regular Joes who you know jog three times a week felt the smallest. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's any validity to that? Just that the fact that guys were more regular then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at guys now; they're machines. Um, you, it's funny. I was looking through some old hockey cards the other day. You look at some cards from the seventies. The early 70s, the guys look like us. I'm like, wow, he has my body. He has my head shape. I mean, training camp was go for a jog. And did you golf over the summer? That's great. Way to go. You smoke cigarettes? Yeah, only two packs a day. So, yeah, there, it seemed like guys were pretty much more relatable then. They were making the same money as, I mean, when my dad started practicing medicine in 1970, he made more than your average NHLer. A lot more. It's different now. Um, Gary Cheevers, I think, is in this book. He talks about how his training camp was wrapping garbage bags around himself in the car with the heat on. And smoking a pack of darts the night before camp, losing five pounds. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I love uh, that story. Cheevers apparently had a clause in his contract. He was allowed to have a beer at intermission. Wow. That was in Verlina Slam. We got TX uh, autobiography. I'm going to ask Cheesy that next time I see him. I, I, I would believe that, yeah. Um, around the time Upper Deck arrived in hockey, or I, I guess... When hockey, when when Upper Deck arrived in hockey, what mm -hmm. what did that signify? Um, it just signified how hot the card world was because uh, baseball and, and cards. Upper Deck changed the baseball card world in '89 when it came out, and so of course you changed the baseball card world. You've cashed in on that, so now you're a big company. What do you want to do? You're looking elsewhere. So there was basketball, there was football. Logically, they go to the National Hockey League. When they go to the NHL. Um, people really get into hockey cards. And it also increased revenue in the NHL, which uh, the old card boom actually contributed to a work stoppage in the NHL because there was a big issue about players wanting a bigger piece of the pie from, from all this hockey card money. So it's it all kind of, it's funny. I mean, they're innocent little cards, but the innocence went away with kind of the card boom because the revenues went up. And all of a sudden, cards are... They're a moneymaker for players. You know, back in the day, Tops used to take your picture in the 50s, and they'd send you a toaster. Like, they used to have a magazine. they go to the players, so what do you want? We'll give you $5, and you can have a one of these high-tech 1950s toasters. And the players were thrilled, whereas then cards became a big revenue producer, and all of a sudden, players are going, okay, we, we want a cut of this. I mean, which is understandable. Their face is on the card. So Gordie Howe got, what, a leather jacket for signing? Wasn't mm -hmm. it a jacket and a, probably a toaster? In the 50s. for He probably would have got a toaster from Tops, and he got a jacket from the Red Wings. <laughs> Different times. Um, but, was the agent. But yeah. Upper Deck <laughs> itself, though, I mean, what? why is it so special in the card collecting world? Why is that um, brand so special? Because Upper Deck changed it because all of a sudden the photography was sharp. The cards were shiny. I mean, the old Topso Peachy brand, I love it. It was very innocent. 
It was just cardboard. The photos weren't always the best because, hey, maybe they only took your photo one night in Washington or one night in St. Louis. And you know what? If the photo was a little out of focus or wasn't perfectly framed, so be it. Upper deck comes along, and all of a sudden, this photography is just sharp. The cards are printed on a really impressive stock. Um, so it upped the game. They became the, the premium card. So then all of a sudden, OPG says, oh, my goodness, we can't just produce our regular set. They started to produce OPG Premier, which Premier. is a 132-card set, which people went bonkers yes, over. Because, as you guys know, supposedly it was in shortage. Right. So Yarmar Yager's rookie card's going for 50 bucks. The Fedorov one's going for 50 bucks. It just, Upper Deck changed the game in baseball cards, and they changed the game in hockey cards for sure. And everybody else just kind of, they kind of followed. I remember when Upper Deck Baseball came out, 89 Upper Deck, it was listed as a buck a pack, which was insanity. <laughs> you know, it was, but that's, but, but what I love about cards now, and people always complain, you know, all cards are too expensive. But now, get this, you can go into Tim Hortons, and I bought my coffee today. Oh, baby. And you can get a pack. For 99 cents. And, and what I love about these cards, I'll open the pack now, is they can buy a pack for 99 cents for kids. You know, you yeah, get yeah. Jonathan Marshall. So, hey, Sidney Crosby. Oh, nice. And William Carlson. So, I'll take these cards home. I'll give them to my son. He'll be disappointed there's no Sharks and no uh, Tampa Bay. He'll be happy there's a Sidney Crosby. And they'll wonder what the Vegas team is. So, I love that kids <laughs> can still go out. And these upper deck cards are still really sharp. I love the kids can go out now and get a pack for 99 cents the way I used to 30 years ago. Yeah, the uh, score uh, with the Crosby card there. Yeah, I wondered uh, how much to... Yes. I sometimes feel with sports now we're, we've kind of lost the... Innocence? It's not Maybe not so much the innocence, but I think everything is... I think we've all become so... We've come to look at everything so trans like as, as a transaction in sports. Like, yes. oh, this guy's on my fantasy team. Yes, I, I, you know, but there's, I mean, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That you know, we have the sort of I think Neil Pollock called it the cult of the general manager. But yeah. how much do the cards tie back to that more time where it was kind of more of a? It felt like a more personal thing. Absolutely, it was very personal. I remember watching games and lining my cards up on the floor. I'd line up the Canadians by line and things like that, and I'd take them and tack them up on my wall. And it was, I, I always used the term innocent. It was an innocent time. It seemed more innocent then. I'm sure it was still a business. Guys were still getting cut. But yeah, I mean, you go to a, like, just the, I think the wealth of information we have now has eliminated the need for a card for a lot of people. But if you just go back and just look at what it was all about, it was a pretty special thing. But I mean, you go to a game now and 18,000 people a lot of times sit there with their arms crossed pretending they're the GM. The salary caps changed it. Oh, he's a good player. Yeah, but is he a $3.5 million player? Analytics. That's, analytics have changed it. I mean, you can tell by reading the book. I'm not an analytics guy. If you are, that's great. I'm a storyteller guy, right? I'm I'm not going to bash my brain out looking at the newest stat because this guy should be on the third line instead of the fourth line. That's up to the GM to decide. I'm going to enjoy the game. I like the stories. And when you talk to retired players, here's the thing. None of them sit around the room going, hey, remember that goal you scored in 1987? They talk about stories. Right. Stories are what makes the game tick. They're what makes the game special. And that's why it's called hockey card stories. It's not hockey card facts. It's hockey card <laughs> stories. I like stories. That's just the way I am. I'm a storyteller. My dad's a storyteller. My grandmother was a storyteller. It's just kind of how I'm wired. So this isn't a book that's going to blow your mind with 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 stats and numbers, it's it's just it's me sitting around having a coffee or a beer 
and we're talking. That's kind of what I'm trying to get through. The design of the book is exceptional. Way to go, uh, ECW, my publisher. I know it feels like a pack of hockey cards. My brother's my brother's a collector, as we talked about, and he said, you know, I love the the cover. It's feels. crazy. Yeah, and I know the inside has like the gum, the fake gum. It, people say, how come it doesn't smell like gum? I said I didn't have the money for a scratch and sniff. <laughs> I wish it did. Who designed? Like, was there a person? Yeah, that's uh, ECW. That's my publisher. So they designed the cover. It's amazing. The uh, the feel of it is awesome. I don't know how they found that but that just goes to show you the person who writes the books a small part of it they design it they did the design is amazing it looks cool um it just i don't know how they did it but props to them and it's almost a home and away version of the first right? yeah the colors are reversed well we did that because back in the day when you bought a pack of opichi the the packs almost looked the same every year but a little different right right colors were reversed so that's kind of what we what we did there uh now i just sort of wondered uh I mean, I guess with books, success kind of self-perpetuates, right? I mean, yeah. if you get the first one. Yeah. Uh, now, all your books, they're all, they've all been well-received, but they're all, I guess they were, if we were using movie franchise lingo, they're all in the NHL universe. What's the challenge in, of, if, if you wanted to go, you know, sort of deviate from that and you know, go off, the, go even farther off? Like if I didn't want to write about the NHL? Yeah. I don't think I would. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just don't want this Hockey Card Stories 2. I want it to be more successful than Caddyshack too. That's my goal, <laughs> right? Like, I just, uh, um, I don't know if I'd write about anything else. I'm really passionate about hockey. I enjoy talking to hockey players. I, it's it's something that's easy for me because I've always I'm always talking about hockey and telling stories. So, um, I don't know what else I'd write about. So for me, it's just kind of I think I've branded myself a hockey guy. I guess my inside information is telling me that you're apparently going to write MLS stories. Yeah, MLS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't look for Ken, that book. Big soccer fan. Not the biggest soccer guy on the planet. Oh. Going to admit that. Yeah, uh, not a soccer fan. Don't get mad at me if you are a soccer fan. <laughs> I find some people are very uh, territorial about their sports. I'm not like like I. Uh, I'm fine with curling, but I'm not passionate about curling. So I used to do a show on the radio in Edmonton, and I, you know, I kind of just voiced that. I'm like, yeah, but if you like curling, that's cool. And and this guy called up, and he was angry. How can you not like curling? Curling's this, curling's that. I said, do you like pro bass fishing? Well, no, that's stupid. I don't like pro bass fishing. I go, well, I don't like it either. That doesn't mean you're a bad guy. Like, we all have sports we love, and we're connected to more than others. For me, I'm just more connected to hockey, maybe baseball a bit as well, but mostly hockey. So I'll just kind of stay in my wheelhouse. You know, that's that's how I like it. It comes, I don't want to say it comes supernatural to me, but it comes natural to me. So if I were to write about um, football, I'd be stretching it, right? If I were to write about baseball, I don't think I'd be stretching it, but hockey's just easier. And, and, and hey, I'm lazy, so it's easier. <laughs> you're, you're a fan of the game. Yeah. You love hockey. Love it. Inside and out. And so let's, let's go back to the book, in, in particular, Wilf Paymont. Who wore number ninety nine, and so he was what one of the last. Like, so Gretzky, him, and someone else. Right? Uh, Gretzky, Paymont, and Rick Dudley wore ninety. Last three guys to wear ninety nine, and mm -hmm. Paymont was the last to wear it, other than Gretzky. He wore it in the eighty eighty one season. So when I hand you this particular card, okay, I like this. This is the reveal. Um, yeah, and you see the number on Josh Hosang is sixty six. How, how do you do you think this will be like a Wilf Paymont card one day? Because he's yeah. changed his number, I believe. I think Lou Lamorello made him change his number it could to twenty six. Well, I know he got cut again. Yeah, uh, it could be. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, 
Because six, no one else. I can't think of one other player that has worn no, it regularly. But here's the thing with Josh Hosang. Nobody wore 66 when Lemieux was on the ice, right? Like no one right. else in the league in the right. 80s and the 90s wore 66. Right. right. Josh Hosang was born in 1996. Mario Lemieux wrapped up his career around 2002, 2003. So Josh is seven when Mario says goodbye. Right. I don't think Josh meant any disrespect at all by wearing 66. Um, if someone with the organization thought maybe this isn't a good look, they could have convinced him otherwise. But I think the kid meant no disrespect by wearing 66. He might be the last to ever, ever wear it, but hey, we see guys wear nine all the time now, right? Gordie Howe, Bobby Hall, The Rocket, they all wear nine. Uh, the league retired 99, so you right. can't wear that. But I mean, uh, Matt Stajan used to wear 14 for the Toronto Maple Leafs, which would be sacrilegious <laughs> in the eyes of some because it was a Davy Keon number. But I don't think Josh meant any disrespect. But yes, this may be the last 66 on a hockey card, Neil. You're onto something. I'm glad you uh, gave us your feedback on that, uh, not only just with the card, but also with the, uh, you know, with, with what you think of him wearing that number. I think general. it's fine. I think we make, a lot of us make so much about respect and disrespect, respect for the game. As Jeff Merrick says, and I, I, I subscribe to the same feeling, go back and watch a bench-clearing brawl from the 1970s with Steve Durbano ripping Bobby Hall's wig off his head and go walk a guy punching <laughs> another guy in the back of the head, respecting the game. There's always been nasty stuff. So if some kid wants to wear 66, power to him. Um, how does, uh, you're an East Coaster. I've, I was born in Newfoundland, and I spent some time on the East Coast. And so you don't have to be from the East Coast to love Bob Cole. Um, but how does Bob Cole factor into your book, uh, other than being a hockey broadcaster? Mm -hmm. I, I think he, he, he scouted a player, did he, he not? Yeah, he did. Uh, Doug Grant from uh, Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, was a player for uh, the Cornerbrook Royals. And this is the Newfoundland Senior League. And Bob Cole told the uh, GM of the, the Detroit Red Wings during an Allen Cup one year, keep an eye on this guy. Lo and behold, a few years later, Doug is in the NHL. And it's just another great story. Bob's, Bob's been connected to so many players from Newfoundland. He's connected to so many of us. I'm so psyched he's coming back for Hockey Night in Canada this year. He's my hockey hero, man. If I were to list my three hockey heroes, Gila Fleur, Wayne Gretzky, Bobby. Bobby Cole. I mean, just an amazing. The fact that he knows my name now, because I work with him, is freaks me out, you know? I, I think it's just awesome. He's just a super, super guy. I, I can't get enough Bob Cole. Yeah, now you mentioned in terms of like meeting heroes and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so so what was it sort of like going to some – what were some of those – like you mentioned going to a big card show in Chicago. Yeah. Like what was it sort of like just walking up to those guys, like getting over the, I guess, any yeah. apprehension you might I, have had? I got over the apprehension years ago. Like it's not a big deal. Like I separate the two because of work. Um, so interviewing Gila Fleur is just interviewing Gila Fleur. Interviewing Wayne Gratzky – well, it's still pretty cool. I'll admit it, but but you sep during the moment you separate it. It's just your job. But afterwards, you, you go, "Wow, that was pretty cool. That's a guy I grew up watching." But I mean, sometimes you might have to interview a guy in a critical situation, right? About something more important than a hockey card. So you separate it. But I think you you separate your boyhood dreams from your from your adulthood. But for me, I think it's really important to remind myself that I this, this was my boyhood dream. So I'll be honest, when the Gretzky interview was over, I hung up the phone and I was just, yes, because I really wanted to get that interview in the book. And it's a thrill to talk to Wayne Gretzky. But as I'm, as I'm interviewing him, I'm not, you know, oh, my goodness, Mr. Gretzky. I'm not, it's not an interview like that. It's a regular interview. Same with Guy Lafleur, but I'll, 
I'll be talking to my dad or on the phone. What's new? Oh, I interviewed Guy Lafleur the other day. Oh my goodness, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. He's a nice guy. So you you separate the two. But but for me, it's important to remind myself that yeah, I'm forty something now. But I was once a ten year old guy, and that ten year old kid kind of fuels what I do now. Are you aware that Wayne Gretzky has uh, different types of alcoholic beverages for sale in the LCBO? I know he's got a whiskey, and I know he's got a wine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is a bag of prizes you got here. This is for you, Ken. Wow, buddy, thanks. Is this a vino? It is, and it has kind of like a Wayne Gretzky autograph it on the It does have a... Oh, Riesling, my wife will love that. <laughs> Thank you, fellas. You guys are too kind for that. Uh, no Number sweat. Number 99, I love that. That's cool. You always got to that bottle. There's always got to be a gift uh, on the... Uh, on the show for Thank our you guests. guys. That's too kind of you. Um, I wanted to, um, I guess, skip ahead to, I guess, I think this was my favorite part of the book, and it's... Um, my favorite part of the podcast is your bag of surprises. Yeah, Josh Hosang and Eric Lindros, a bottle of wine yeah. glasses in there. You're like Monty Hall. <laughs> for you young wrestler listeners, he's an old game show host. Yes, let's make a deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, I apologize. We have no Fiji water today, though. Normally, we're, we're oh, always really? bringing the good water. Well, the, water's water, I think. Um, so, my favorite part of the book was that late, uh, I guess, kind of three-quarters of the way through under the chapter Airbrush. Yeah. And it was it involved Ken Solheim. Yeah. And I wanted you to just read the part that I liked, and we can talk about it after. Sure. I have it highlighted for you. Sure. This is like an audio book. By the yeah. way, I recorded an audiobook. Never going to do it again. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh, so much work. Solheim says he got a little taste of his dream making it to the NHL, and he ended up playing in 135 regular season NHL games. His final six were with the Edmonton Oilers. It was almost full circle for Solheim, who played in the Alberta Junior League for Doug Messier's St. Albert Saints just outside of Edmonton before he went to Medicine Hat. Quote, that was probably the highlight of my career to play with the Oilers. I played on a line with Gretzky and Curry for a couple of games, and then I played with Messier and Anderson for a couple of games. To play with Gretzky and those guys was the highlight of my career. It will go down as one of the best teams ever. And quote, just in case I ever end up on a line with 99, I asked Ken if he has any advice for playing with the great one. Quote, just play your game and relax. That was the toughest thing. I remember I was so nervous and uptight. It's tough to play that way. You've just got to relax and play your game. That's easy to say, but there was a lot of pressure. I was just a young guy coming to this team. I thought, do I belong here or not? End quote. That's the thing. Even at the highest level of hockey, players question if they belong. It's like any other line of work. Remember your first few days at a new job? I know I've questioned if I belong over the years. Perhaps you have as well. Ken Solheim did too during his NHL career. Quote, the mental part of the game is to understand that you're good enough to be there and to have the confidence to play with those guys. And I had a hard time with that. I don't think I had the confidence to say to myself, you're good enough to be here. It takes time. It really takes time to fit in. I really like the the, the, the element there where you talked about, you know, even yourself. Wondering, yeah. Uh, you know, and you're at the highest level of your profession as an anchor. Um, is this something, you know, do you think you would have written something like this in Hockey Card Stories 1? Is this, is yeah, this you're more, right. more comfortable talking about yourself yep, now like, absolutely so in hockey card stories one i didn't want to insert myself into the narrative at all but they told me insert yourself into the narrative it'll make for a better book so i did and so this one i, I did as well but that when ken said that about fitting in i to i totally feel like that and i did a lot early on in my career at sportsnet in the media i always did it i don't anymore i've right. got the confidence now but i used to be like man i'm you know 
I'm working with Doug McLean. I'm working with Nick Kiprios. These are guys I, I've watched for years. And, geez, Ron McLean's a colleague. And, you know, Don Cherry knows my name. And and I remember when I started in the NHL in Calgary, going into a dressing room. I just kind of convinced myself, do it. But right. now I feel I fit right. in, right? Not in a cocky way. Right. But in a, hey, I've worked hard. I deserve to be here. But I can totally relate to what Ken Solheim saying because he finds himself on a line with Wayne Gretzky. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And I, I think... What made Gretzky so good, and it's the same thing that makes Sidney Crosby so good, they can usually play with anyone. You'll say, how come Crosby always plays with these guys who are called up from the American League and these young guys? Because he makes them better. Wayne Gretzky used to make Dave Lumley better. You know, he could, he could do that for players. So, yeah, the fitting in thing in any profession, any profession, whether you're a doctor, lawyer, teacher, whatever, writer, broadcaster, it's a challenge. So it's. I thought that was kind of right. an uh, interesting quote from him. Yeah, and it normalizes having a feeling of maybe you know having a doubt. Hey, Do I belong? Yeah. Everybody has doubts, yeah. right? Even even the best hockey players in the world have doubts. That's pretty cool. And think about it. So Ken Solheim's trying to make the Edmonton Oilers. He has doubts. There's a superstar probably trying to make the Canadian Olympic team, and I bet they have doubts, which is pretty amazing. And I, I'll, yeah, and in terms of, uh, I mean, obviously, the, as you've progressed with each book, the, the confidence is probably growing. But yeah. I just wondered, uh, you know, it's people have the image of the, you know, the author just sitting there waiting for inspiration to strike. It's yeah. not like that. No. How do you how do you grind out? I mean, yeah, I probably asked you about this the first time you wrote. Yeah. But how do you how do you grind out a book while you're again like you know anchoring a yeah. Sportsnet Central at ten o'clock? Yeah. Every weeknight. So luckily, I don't do much during the day. I have two kids now, so that it, my days are a little busier. And, uh, but what I do is I, I got to be in the mood, but when I'm in the mood to write, I put on some Albert Collins, great blues artist, crank that up. Once I transcribe, I kind of get in the zone and away I go. And to be honest, I don't want this to come off as cocky or anything, but look, I'm not William Shakespeare. Okay. I'm just, the, what you see on the page is what I would tell you. So I write my words. And I think that comes from doing TV because Kids will ask me, I'll, I'll go t t uh, sit in on Ivanka Osmak's class at the College of Sports Media, and they say, how do you write for TV? I go, say it, and then write it down. So I just say it, and I write it down. Try to double-check it, but uh, I, a lot of people say, hey, this when I read your book, it just sounds like you. And I go, that's the highest compliment you can pay me, because I'm not going to confuse you. I, I'm not going to use any confusing words, because I don't know anything. My writing, I, I think it's simple. It, it's ordinary. It's just, it's just how I'd tell you a story at a bar. So I don't sit there going, oh, how can I make this fit? I just, I just do it. It's, look, it's not, I'm the furthest thing from a rocket scientist. I'm just, I'm just some dude. I like to think of myself if I was Wooderson from Days and Confused and I wrote a book. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's, out it's there. It's not going to take your character six pages to cross a field. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, so... What uh, official release date was or is? Uh, I think the official release date might be today. October oh, yeah. Is it October 2nd today? I, yes, it is. It might be today. Uh, okay, if you're listening and you're in the Toronto area, I'm having a launch party. Come down October 9th, 6.30 p.m., uh, 100 Front Street East at the Jason George. It's open to the public. See, again, I'm not one of these highfalutin writers with an ascot. <laughs> you don't need an exclusive invite. Come around to the Jason George. Books are 20 bucks. I'll donate 5 bucks from the sale of each book, each book to Easter Seals because I'm not making a ton of money off the book anyway, so why not give Easter Seals a few bucks? And I'll sign it for you for free wow. if you want it signed. 
But come on down to the Jason George. Um, I'll be signing books there. I'll be at the Brampton Beast game October 28th. I'll be at the Sports Card Expo November 10th and 11th signing books. I'll be at the Upper Deck uh, display. So I know there's probably a lot of hockey card listeners tuning in. Uh, so come down. And ECW, aside from making the books, they even made me little hockey cards of me from like when I was 10, which are hilarious. So I'll throw those in the books too if you come to a signing. They'll go for at least ten cents a piece when they hit the open market. <laughs> anything, uh, anything else you want to add? Uh, I, I like this format. I like that you guys talk about writing. Uh, I like the format. I appreciate the wine. Uh, I like the discussion. It's different, so it's cool. I like what you guys do, and I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. But yeah, if you're out there, pick the book up. And here's the other deal with this book: makes a great Christmas gift <laughs> for the guy or girl in your life. You just don't know what to get them. They're 45 years old. Chances are they collected hockey cards. Take them back in time with Hockey Card Stories Two by Ken Reed. Available now in bookstores everywhere. That was like you were just like channeling like a 1980s KTEL commercial. <laughs> yeah. I think we might just. I think I might just edit it and end it on what you just did, Ken. That yeah, was that was that was pretty amazing. That was my announcer voice. Well, guess what? Now we get to uh, open the wine. It's not even noon yet. Awesome. Wicked. That's my life. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Thanks for the vino.